Hello, dear listener. This is Tanner here with Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. A reminder that these episodes about Ukraine and Russia are not scripted. They are reporting as quickly as events happen, as often as I can get them. Sometimes I will misspeak. Sometimes I will say things that are untrue, simply because the information that I have at the time is all that I'm being given. In the future, we may look back at things I say here and we'll realize, oh, he was totally wrong about that. But remember, I am doing this because I want people to be as updated as I am, because I'm trying to stay as updated as possible about the events that are happening and trying to report them as unbiased as I possibly can. So with that being said, please give me grace if I misspeak, and please remember that I'm trying to do my absolute best. Without further ado, enjoy this one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. The podcast is Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. I'm Tanner, and I'm talking about the stuff that happened. Welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. If you've been following the podcast, you are well aware that it has been, I think, two weeks since I last updated, and a little bit of explanation for that. Bottom line, I've suddenly gotten very, very busy, and most of my days begin around 7.30 in the morning and don't end until well after 10 p.m., maybe 11, maybe after midnight. And so I've just been exhausted. I was recently cast in a a community musical and uh, cast as the leading man. I'm very, very excited about that. I also, for the last four days, I've been dog-sitting, and so I've been at my aunt's house taking care of her dogs, and I didn't have a whole lot of great internet access there, and uh, working a lot. There's just a lot going on right now, and I've been very, very tired, and so this is the first, this is actually my first night off in, I think, around two weeks. My first night where I officially have zero things I have to do, and so I was like, you know what? I've got to sit down, I've got to release a podcast, I've got to, you know, share my opinion of what's going on on the ground in Ukraine, because uh, it's really meant a lot to me, because recently I've had several of my friends contact me, whether it's I run into them and we have have a personal interaction, or they text me, or they even call me and they let me know, hey, this, I'm really glad that you're doing this, and I just want to let you guys know who have said that to me, that really means a lot to me, and, uh, so thank you for that. Really, really, really from the bottom of my heart, thank you for letting me know that you're enjoying what you're, what I'm doing here, what I'm trying to do here. Uh, now remember, if you don't know me in person, the best way you can support this podcast and let me know that you're enjoying this is to just go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing. That's the best way to get the podcast to reach more people. So... Without further ado, let's get right into the meat and potatoes of what we're here to talk about and what you're here to listen to. And that's the situation on the ground between Russia and the Ukraine. Now, in the two weeks since I last released an episode, the situation on the ground in Ukraine has actually fundamentally changed. And the reasons that it has changed are that Baseline, Russia has completely changed its tactic for how it's going to go about waging this war in that it has pulled away from Kiev in the north. I think Russian troops, I saw a map the other day and it looks like Russian troops have officially pulled out of the north of Ukraine. They've they've abandoned the siege of Kiev. They are no longer attacking the capital city of Ukraine which means that President Zelensky is now much safer because he has been in Kiev this whole time. There have been a lot of theories that uh, Zelensky was actually in a secure location, but he has been in Kiev. There is a lot of corroboration, a lot of corroborating evidence that he has been in Kiev this whole time. I personally believe that he has been in Kiev, 
which means he is now much safer from the action concerning the war that is being waged on his country. Now, just because Russian troops have pulled out of Kiev and have pulled out of the north of Ukraine does not mean the war is over, and it doesn't necessarily even mean Ukraine is winning the war, because recent news has come out, recent meaning like within the last 12 hours, news has come out that Russian troops are flooding into the republics of Luhansk and Donetsk in the east of Ukraine, which is which are the two republics that this war is essentially being waged over. And if Russian troops are flooding into the east of Ukraine, it means that Russia is likely planning to launch an enormous attack into the east of Ukraine and turn this into a much more ferocious war for the east of Ukraine and maybe even the south of Ukraine from attacking from Crimea and attacking from Luhansk and Donetsk. Now, this could change the ground game for Ukraine pretty, pretty significantly because Luhansk and Donetsk have been pretty much fighting on their own since the beginning of the war. They did supply about twenty to 22,000 of their own paramilitary forces, militia that have been raised, pro-Russian militia that have been raised in Donetsk and Luhansk. They raised their own militias, and those militias invaded Ukraine when Russia invaded Ukraine. So Russia essentially invaded from the north and the south, and the militias from Luhansk and Donetsk invaded from the east. Now, these militias from Luhansk and Donetsk did not make very much headway, if really any headway at all. Their invasions were essentially futile, and they really just lost more soldiers than they could afford to lose in those attacks because the Ukrainian military had 80,000 Ukrainian soldiers stationed on that border when the Russians invaded. One, because there's been a civil war there for the last eight years, and two, because they were anticipating a Russian invasion anyway. So the gains in the east have been minimal, and Ukraine, and because the gains in the north were pretty significant because Ukraine was not anticipating that Russia would use Belarus to, as a staging area to invade, and so when Russia invaded from the north, the Ukrainians were caught off guard, and that's why Russia was able to get to Kiev within a matter of days after the war began. In the south, they were able to invade because they used Crimea as a staging area, and I think even though Ukraine was it was preparing for the for an invasion i don't think that they anticipated that russia would use crimea and belarus and also invade from the east that's why in the south significant gains have been made because ukraine has been fighting a war on three fronts the north because ukraine didn't think that russia would use belarus the south because Ukraine still technically has claims over Crimea, and I think they still weren't totally believing that Russia would actually invade in the, in the east. Ukraine was ready for that. So that's why gains in the south have been significant, gains in the north were significant, and gains in the east have not been significant, because Ukraine was ready for the east. So that's, that's the situation now. And so what does this mean for what could happen in the next month or so after the, as the war continues? Well, what could happen is that there could be an enormous clash of Russian and Ukrainian forces in the east, supported by the Luhansk and Donetsk republics. So far, Russian forces have been split between three different fronts, and Ukrainian forces have also been split between three different fronts. The bulk of Ukrainian forces have been defending Kyiv, and the bulk of Russian forces have been evading from the south. So we haven't seen any enormous clashes between the two armies yet. Even though, you know, a lot of news sources have been advertising this is just like the bloodiest war in history, essentially, that's not what's happening here. So, at least yet. So what we're going to see now is that 
Ukraine is going to redirect a lot of its forces to the east. They're going to re redirect a lot of the forces to the eastern border with Luhansk and Donetsk. And probably send some more troops to the south as well to try to liberate Mariupol, which is still under siege, and uh, Kherson, which has been taken by Russian forces since the early days of the war. And what could happen then, at that point, is that Russia will continue its conventional military tactics, it will use air support on Ukrainian forces, Ukrainian forces will probably start using artillery and use the Stinger missiles that have been supplied by NATO, and that's when we'll have an all-out war on the eastern front of Ukraine. This is the same battlefield where Operation Barbarossa and World War II happened, where the great battles of and subsequent battles between the Soviet Union and the Germans as the Soviet Union fought back and pushed back through Ukraine. This is where we saw battles of World War I over Galicia, where Russians suffered some intense defeats at the hands of the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, and also where Napoleon lost... I think 90% of his military force when he was marching into Russia to try to capture it. So this area knows war. It's seen a lot of death and it looks like it's about to see a lot more. Okay, so by and large, that is the situation on the ground as of today, April 11th, 2022. Now, there's a news article that, well, not an article, but a piece of news that has come out that's going viral that I want to address a little bit. Uh, and this is from a trusted news source that I follow. So there has been a claim from civilians in the southeastern city of Mariupol, which again has been under siege for about a month now, that the Russian forces used a chemical agent against military defenders of Mariupol and civilians in Mariupol. They say that a series of canisters were dropped from an unmanned aerial vehicle that was over the city and... Anyone who came in contact with the contents that came out of these canisters after they were dropped experienced respiratory failure and vestibulo-ataktic syndrome. And that's a series of symptoms that essentially means that your motor functions are being impaired. Maybe you can't control your eye movements very well. You're very dizzy. Things like that. Uh, I do not see any reports of death from these chemical attacks yet. And again, we don't know. We, these have not been confirmed yet, so I don't want to jump to conclusions. But... This claim has been made about four hours ago from the release of this podcast. This claim was made. Now, the latest updates are that about three hours ago, a member of Ukraine's parliament relayed this information on uh, a series of social media platforms. And this member of parliament called for action against the Russians, uh, the Russian Federation, because of this attack. Now, you got to remember about a week ago, maybe a little bit, a little bit longer ago, President Biden said in a press conference that if Russia uses chemical weapons, that, quote, we will respond in kind. He essentially said that if Russia uses chemical weapons, we will send chemical weapons and attack Russia. This is terrifying to me because that would mean World War III. Immediately. That is an act of war. Russia would treat it as an act of war and we would immediately be in World War III. I did not like it when Biden said that. I do not want to be involved in this conflict. I do not want the United States to be involved in this conflict. I want this conflict to stay between Russia and the Ukraine. That may seem heartless of me, but I do not want any other nations involved in this conflict because we do not need more death than we're already seeing. About an hour and a half after that, which this is about uh, two hours ago, a little less than two hours ago, there's uh, a source that this news agency has inside the Pentagon, which relayed that there was an emergency meeting inside the Pentagon, which regarded the development of possible chemical weapons use. Now, the source was not present in the meeting, but they are connected to someone who is. 
As of right now, they have no information. And what the source says is that as of right now, as of this moment in time, they do not have any information or any evidence that any chemical weapons were used in Mariupol. So let's not jump to conclusions about this. If this happened, this is scary because this could escalate the war into potentially a world war. But, I mean, at best it would escalate to the fact that there probably there would probably be more nations jumping into the fight because this would be an act of, you know, human rights abuses, which Russia has already perpetrated. We're very well aware of that. But this specific type of human rights abuses, the use of chemical weapons against civilian targets, is... That's where things can get really dicey, because the last time we saw that happen was in Syria back in uh, 2017, maybe 18, maybe 16, something around that, when President Trump responded to a use of chemical weapons against civilian targets by firing a large number of missiles into an airfield, blowing up a bunch of planes and killing a couple people. That's how we responded to these chemical weapon attacks. Now, we don't have dicey relations with Syria. We don't have great relations with Syria, but we don't we don't we don't have the strained relationships with them that we have with Russia right now. Now, under this strained relationship, we're at the point where we need people are going to start flexing their muscles and say, "Okay, well you're going to do that. Well, I'm going to do this because I'm not going to stand up for what you're doing to this country." And that's where we've been up until this point. And the words from Joe Biden aren't helping. Joe Biden calling Putin a war criminal. That's not helping the situation. All these people calling for action against Ukraine or, or against the Russians. This, that's not helping this, this situation. There's anti-Russian sentiment in the United States right now. People are trashing Russian restaurants. I'm ranting. I'm sorry. But that's the situation we're in right now. People weren't trashing Syrian restaurants. People weren't trashing. People weren't like, this, there wasn't anti-Syrian sentiment really in the United States maybe anti-Muslim sentiment, but not anti-Syrian sentiment. This is a nation we're looking at right now. And if this nation were to carry out a series of chemical weapon attacks, which the president of this nation has openly stated that he will retaliate against, even though it's not enacted on his own people, that's where things can get really dicey. And so I'm watching this really closely. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to publish this today is because I want to get this news out there. We don't know for sure if this actually took place and let's not jump to any conclusions right now. Please, for the love of God, don't jump to any con con conclusions right now at the moment. All right, before we call it a day, there are two more things that I want to talk about. I'm going to keep this one pretty short just because I've got a larger project that I'm working on, which is I'm going to be talking about the origins of this war so people can understand it instead of just saying, yeah, Putin's a madman, Putin's crazy, because that narrative did not sit right with me. And so I decided to do my own research. And from that research, I've been able to start to understand the roots of this conflict that go way back. We're talking Soviet Union back. And so we, we got to talk about that. It's important to talk about that. So there's two more things I want to talk about. One of them is that Russia is being widely accused of human rights abuses in Ukraine. Every couple hours, I get a notification about a new news article talking about, you know, as Russia retreats from the north, we're seeing lots of human rights abuses. We're seeing people who have been tortured, people who have been murdered, civilians being mutilated, and it's, it's tragic stuff. Hospitals bombed and schools bombed, and there's all these civilians dying in Ukraine, and this is absolutely tragic. It's just horrible that this is happening. Absolutely, yes. Now, before I carry on, I want to make it very clear that I do think this is absolutely tragic. War is a horrific thing, and one of the reasons this is being so widely covered is because this is the first war that we've seen on the European continent since the invention of social media, since 
mass media became a huge thing, and you know the wars in Yugoslavia were somewhat like this, but not on this scale. This is the this is the biggest since World War II, and ergo, the biggest war that has been seen, the biggest conventional war fought since the end of World War II, and the first conventional war fought since the advent of social media. So that's why this is all flooding social media, and people are like, oh, this is horrible, Russia's ho- so horrible, Putin's an evil person, Putin's, you know, the devil, and stuff like that. You know, obviously, obviously, this invasion of Ukraine, I'm not on board with it. I do not like the fact that this war is going on. I wish it would end. I hope these peace accords go according to plan. Now, with all that said, I want to make a couple points. The United States was in the Middle East for, I think, 17 years, 18 years. I think 18 years. We were, we were in Afghanistan for 18 years in Iraq for eight years. We were in, we had points where we were in Syria. We had points where we were in a little bit in Iran. We, you know, I think Iran, don't quote me on that. I, now that I think about it, we might've not been there, but Anyway, we had troops all over the Middle East for a long, long time. And during that time, a lot of civilians died at the hands of United States soldiers. Civilians that died from bombing raids, that died from ground raids, that died being caught in crossfires. There were people who, there were women who were raped, there were people who were mutilated, there were people who were tortured, there were people there were children who died. I mean, for years and years and years this went on in the Middle East, and these were these these attacks were perpetrated largely by the United States. And sure, a lot of them were accidents, but not all of them were accidents. And these things did happen because we were trying to demoralize the Islamic State. We were trying to demoralize the people who were supporting Saddam Hussein. I mean, it, there's a lot of moving parts to these conflicts, obviously. And I'm not going to try to water them down like people try to water down the Ukraine-Russian conflict. It's way complicated, and we don't understand it because we don't live there. But I'm very annoyed with the fact that there are so many people that are now calling, including official figures, including the United Nations and Security Council and things like that, who are calling for Russia and for Putin to be put on trial for these type of war crimes when other nations have not been held accountable for the same war crimes being perpetrated. Why have, why has George Bush not been put on trial for war crimes? He was the president when this, these horrific attacks in Iraq and Afghanistan were taking place. Why has Barack Obama not been put on trial? The United States jumped into Yemen when that was going on. Because of the United States' involvement in that war right now, in Yemen, there is the largest humanitarian crisis in the last, I think, 20 years going on. In Yemen. Have you heard about Yemen? You probably haven't. Most people haven't. The news doesn't publish it. The news doesn't cover it. Why has the United States not been held accountable for that? Why are we calling so deeply for Russia to be held accountable for their human rights abuses in Ukraine, for invading a sovereign nation, when there are things going on that other nations are perpetrating across the globe? Right now in China, they're literally committing genocide. I see a lot of activism on that, but why is the United Nations Security Council not acting on that? In Myanmar, literally... The, Mian- the, the Myanmar government has been firing on protesters who've been protesting the current Myanmar government and it's turning into a full-blown civil war. There are human rights abuses happening there. Why is the United Nations Security Council not acting on that? Why are they so focused on what's going on with Putin? This upsets me. This literally upsets me, not because they're acting on it, not because they're accusing Putin of that. I think that's a 
good thing. I think Putin should be held accountable for human rights abuses. I think the Russian military should be held accountable for human rights abuses that they're carrying out. At the same time, I also think the Ukrainian military should be held accountable for human rights abuses that it has perpetrated during the civil war in Luhansk and Donetsk during the ongo during the civil war that was going for eight years. I think the United States should be held accountable for the human rights abuses it has carried out. I think that Myanmar should be held accountable for the human rights abuses it has, it has carried out. Everywhere that there have been human rights abuses, we should say, hey, that's not okay. But why do we pick and choose which human rights abuses we want to prosecute? Why do we do that? And we could go down a whole conspiracy rabbit hole right here. We could totally do that. But I'm not going to do that right now. Mostly just because I'm exhausted and I'm not going to go there right now. But we're going to get a little bit in that direction with my last point that I want to make before I call it a night. And the last point that I want to make is that there's some interesting things happening considering World Bank's and their interactions with Ukraine. And the interactions that I'm going to talk that I'm going to talk about here have been going on for a long time. Now, as I've spoken in recent episodes, Ukraine is a very corrupt country. One of the most corrupt, if not the most corrupt country in Europe. Extremely corrupt on all levels of government, in all levels of business, it's just a culture of corruption in Ukraine. That is not me being xenophobic. That is not me being Ukrainophobic. That's not me being a Russian apologist. That's just the truth. Out of 180 countries surveyed, Ukraine fell 120th in terms of corruption. 180 being the most corrupt. 120 countries. 119 countries came before Ukraine that were less corrupt than them. That's a lot of corruption. Now, Ukraine is saddled with debt and they were saddled with debt before this war started a lot of debt has been put on that country they were scheduled to pay seven billion dollars in debt before the conflict broke out this year only this year now that's only seven billion dollars in payments that they're supposed to make this year that's not how much debt they actually have that's just this year and these debts can be paid over 10 years 15 years 20 years it took Germany, I think, 60 years to pay back. Uh, no, sorry. I think 80 years, maybe a little bit more than that, to pay back their reparations from World War One. These debts can be paid over long periods of time. Now, there are a series of world banks, most notably the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank. These institutions were created to stabilize the global economy. That was why they were there. They want to moderate things. They want to say, okay, let's not let any country get too far into debt. Let's not get any country get too wealthy without, without giving back to other countries, you know, things like that. It's a, they're, they're globalization organization or organizations. Now at the beginning of this conflict, they decided to loan Ukraine an emergency $2 billion. Now, they didn't give that money to them. They loaned it to them. And what a loan is, is that you eventually make payments back on that loan. Ukraine is already supposed to pay back $7 billion this year, which means they probably owe around 
70 or 80 billion dollars to world banks and other nations. I'm going to say that as a conservative estimate. And after the war broke out, Ukraine made scheduled payments on these loans, which means that whoever was crediting Ukraine did not stop demanding payments after the war broke out. There were missiles falling in Kyiv. There were civilians dying in cities across Ukraine. There were Russian soldiers crossing the borders of Ukraine with the intention to kill Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian people. And creditors said, that sucks, we need your money still. Why is that happening? Now, I'm not saying like that shouldn't happen. I'm not saying it should happen. I'm just saying this is kind of weird that this is still going on and that the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which are probably some of the wealthiest organizations in the world, are loaning Ukraine money with the intention of getting money back for it. Now, if the West is so pro-Ukraine, if we're so anti-Russia, if this is such a barbaric attack by Russia, why are we giving money to Ukraine with the intention of having them give it back to us? When we know for a fact that they do not have the means to make this kind of money back, they're in the middle of a war. They're fighting a huge war. They don't have money. All of their money is being sent to buying weapons from other countries. And let's not even get into the fact that while there are while there are a lot of weapons being sent to Ukraine, I, th- I believe most of them are not just being given. I believe they're being bought because these weapons are bought by corporations and corporations are going to send $20 million worth of equipment to a country that they don't care about for free. Let's just be honest about that. So why is this happening? I've got a couple theories. First of all, obviously greed. There's There are greedy people in this world. There are huge global elites that are in control of some of these large organizations and they're greedy and they want money and they don't care how they get it. They don't care about other people. They're narcissists. That's just how it happens. There could be something else going on here. Now, in a couple of episodes, we put our conspiracy hats on just a little bit and I'm going to do it again right now. What happens when a nation gets so far into debt that the people are starving, no one can start a business, the government has to declare martial martial law, there's lines in the streets for people getting food? What happens? What happens when that goes on? Well, what happens is generally we will have revolution, we will have rebellion, people will oust their governments, people will want change, they'll call for change, big protests, if you're really lucky, only protests. Government destabilization happens when you get that saddled with debt especially because Ukraine is already one of the most corrupt countries in the world. The people probably won't change anyway. So, this war started because Ukraine wanted to join NATO. One of the reasons. There's a lot of reasons, but that's pretty much the main reason that's been stated is Ukraine wanted to join NATO, and Russia was not about that. Zelensky has now stated that he has no intentions to join NATO after the war ends, or during the war. He does not any longer want to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, but the war is still ongoing. Russia obviously has other aims, because if he would have just said that, then Russia would have said, okay, that's all we wanted, and they'd leave. But the war is still going on, so there's obviously other things going on. And all this money is suddenly flooding out of Ukraine, so Ukraine is just going further and further and further and further and further into debt during the war. They're at war. 
And supposedly so many Western countries are, oh, we need to help Ukraine. Ukraine is this victim and we need to help them and they deserve our help. Why are they demanding money back? If that's what we're feeling here. If we are so pro-Ukraine, why are we saying, well, you got to give the, you got to give this as money back. We're supposedly one of the wealthiest nations in the world. We have money to spare. What could be happening is that after this war ends, Ukraine will be so saddled with debt. We'll probably see a lot of hyperinflation happening in Ukraine. Ukrainian currencies will be devalued. It's already going to be really hard to get food in Ukraine after this war's over. Probably is hard to get food in Ukraine now. So the people could be really upset. There could be a revolution. They could oust their government. And who in this world is very well known for helping with the ousting of governments and instituting their own governments in other nations? I'm not going to name names, but kind of curious that we're so supportive of Ukraine right now while also demanding that they pay loans back. That's all I'm going to say about that because I'm really tired. I've got a cup of peppermint tea right here. I'm ready to just drink it and take the night. All right. Go hug your friends and family, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know that you're enjoying what you're hearing here. I'll be back in just a few days with another update. Catch you then.